you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday. Oh, our guest is here. Ding dong. It's our doorbell. <laughs> all right. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, October 5th is just moments away. But before we do this, we need to thank our sponsors. Sponsors like SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana. The Chicago Federation of Labor are sponsors. The Chicago Teachers Union are sponsors. Also, Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of cannabis to smoke, drink, Rub into your body. I think there's like lotion for it now. All that stuff and more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky, Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. Subscribe. And if you want to help out this program, you can. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. And you can become a Ben head. It is Tuesday, October 5th, and live from my apartment and still his luxurious Airbnb in Los Angeles, California, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, it's another cannabis conversation with Lisa Solomon and Marlon Chamberlain, and it's the long-awaited return of Senator Robert Peters. now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Facebook Fiasco Tuesday, and here's why. Yeah, folks, I really don't have any other reason to call it Facebook Fiasco Tuesday other than Facebook totally, completely sucks. Broke down yesterday. I don't even want to talk about that. Talk about that later. Just threw that out there, D, because it was on my mind. Yes, indeed. I'm still in California. I uh, came out here last week uh, for the birth of my uh, granddaughter. And uh, so I've been here now, good gosh, for one full week. I spent a lot of quality time this weekend with my granddaughter. And I'm now learning, getting back into the technique. It's been a long, long time since I had an infant in my arms. And uh, so that whole technique of trying to hold an infant so the infant doesn't wiggle off your chest somehow or other, I've not mastered that. Looking at my two guests, they're like, oh, come on, Ben. We know how to do that. Both my guests are like totally experienced and holding infants in their chair. This this little granddaughter of mine is like a wiggler. And so she like just wiggles across my chest. I'm watching the football game. I said, she's just wiggling across my chest. I'm like holding her in my arm like this. You can't see it, folks, but my arm's kind of in the air. Like, please don't fall. They give me the infant and I screw it up. Anyway, it's great to be your grandfather. Before I bring on my distinguished guests, I just want to say one thing. Uh, this one just caught my eye. I want to give a shout out. Hold on. I want to give a shout out uh, to uh, Kiana uh, Cepeda Miller from uh, the Better Government Association and the Chicago Sun Times. Uh, and she is the reporter who diligently does those fact check stories where some politician or official will say something that sounds utterly ludicrous, and she'll do the deep dive and find out 
Is it factual? Is it made up? Uh, is it fiction? Uh, and uh, she gives it a rating. And uh, so she was talking about this woman, uh, State Senator Terry Bryant, a downstate Republican in the state of Illinois, uh, made a proclamation that 75% of Republicans in, uh, are vaccinated. That is the most absurd thing I've ever heard. It just doesn't make sense at all, because when you look at the total population, the numbers for the total population, I think, is like like 50 percent or something like total, uh, maybe a little higher. But the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that that's because a greater portion of the population is Democrats getting vaccinated. So to say that 75 percent of Republicans are vaccinated is just completely fiction. So um, uh, Kiana did the deep dive and the. Started checking into it, and uh, Terry Bryant did not return her calls. Big surprise there. But it's the game the Republicans are playing. Just want to get this out before I bring my guests on. This is the game that the Republicans are playing. On one hand, they're controlled by MAGA. MAGA does not want to ha- have to take the vaccine because they still don't believe that the pandemic is real. So that's on the one hand, all right? MAGA controls them. Just the other day, uh, who was it? Um, Lindsey Graham, Senator Lindsey Graham was giving a speech in South Carolina, South Carolina Senator, Republican, good friend of Donnie Trump, was giving a speech and he said, uh, he encouraged folks to get the vaccine. They started booing him. He goes, well, I'm not saying you got to get it. I'm just saying you might want to think about it. No, boo. They like, they just can't even tolerate. You know, they talk about cancel culture. Republicans are always talking about cancel culture. How about somebody's trying? They want to say anything they want. If they say anything derogatory, nasty, racist, sexist, and somebody objects, and they go, well, "You're canceling our culture." What about Lindsey Graham's culture? In fact, you know whose culture they try to cancel? Donnie Trump. Donnie Trump was giving a speech. What was it about a month ago? My, that just shows you who runs things. People say, oh, Donald Trump runs MAGA. It's not the other way around. No, no, no. Donald Trump had a speech. I think it was in Florida. Or maybe it was Georgia. I can't remember people where the speech was. He was giving, maybe it was Alabama. I don't know. I don't know where the speech was. But really, if you're speaking to MAGA in Florida, I'm just throwing this out there for my guests. Think about this, guest. Florida, Georgia, Alabama, and MAGA, what difference does it make? Uh, anyway, so he gave the speech. He said something about you might want to get the vaccine. And everybody started booing him. And Donnie immediately backed off. You know, he, MAGA runs him. He doesn't run MAGA. He's like, well, I mean, yeah, no, you don't have to get it. So this lady somehow did the calculations with that as a backdrop and came up with 75% of Republicans got vaccine. And uh, Kiana uh, Cepeda-Miller from the BGA called her up and to try to see what, like, what basis uh, she was making that claim. And uh, Terry Bryant, that's her name. Yes, Terry Bryant. Then I returned the call. Of course not. You want to know why, Kiana? Because she made it up. <laughs> see, Republicans think they're slick, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, their base will not uh, tolerate the vaccine as a mandate, won't tolerate masks, doesn't think the, co- the pandemic is real. And yet in order to win, they have to convince, they got to convince friends of our, one of our guests, like Lisa Solomon's friends. They got to convince people like Lisa Solomon's friends that, yeah, they're not that anti-science. So then they get lady like State Senator Terry Bryan throwing out something like 75% of Republicans are vaccinated to try to convince swing voters in DuPage County and Northern Cook County that they're not as that shit crazy as they look. I'm just going to tell you swing voters in Cook County, DuPage County, they are as 
batshit crazy as they look. We got a great show today, everybody. Lisa Solomon, I already gave it away. She's sitting there nodding her head. She knows Mag is crazy. Uh, my partner in crime from the readers on for another cannabis conversation. Although this really isn't a cannabis uh, related. It's a little broader, restorative justice. Uh, it's been an issue on my mind a lot lately. Uh, I'm going to hold back and saying who our distinguished other guest is. I'm going to let Lisa introduce him. Uh, and then in the second part of the show, State Senator Robert Peters uh, from Hyde Park area will be on the show. He introduced a bill the other day. It had me laugh. I immediately reached out to him. Uh, the Chicago Bears are uh, playing their little power play, uh, trying to extort some money from somebody. They don't care who pays for the bill. They don't care where they are. They just want somebody else to pay it, build their stadium. They're so cheap, those Chicago Bears. <laughs> I know. We're going to leave Chicago unless Arlington Heights. And so Arlington High School, take money from their schools and build a stadium for us. Okay, we'll stay in Chicago if you take money from your schools and give it to us. Anyway, Robert Peters introduced a bill. I love it. He goes, not one nickel in state funds to the Bears. Oh, I was like, yeah, Peters. Robert Peters, by the way, the pride and joy of Mount Carmel High School on the south side of Chicago. Big football powerhouse. All right, Lisa Salmon, welcome back to the show. And uh, I want you to have the honors of introducing our distinguished mystery guest. Take it away, Lisa Solomon. Thank you, Ben, for having me on again. And congratulations on the arrival of your first grandchild. Um, yeah, so as Ben alluded to, cannabis conversation, sometimes we're actually talking about the plant, cannabinoids, cannabis and sexual health, um, social equity and social justice. And today our conversation is leaning towards the topics of the war on drugs, which is sometimes referred to as the war on people and reentry and restorative justice. So our special guest today is Marlon Chamberlain, who's director of the Fully Free Campaign for Heartland Alliance. And I am going to let Marlon tell you a little bit about himself and what drew him to this type of work. Marlon, take it away. Thank you, Lisa, and thank you, Ben, for having me on. Uh, once again, my name is Marlon Chamberlain. I am the campaign manager for the Fully Free Campaign with Heartland Alliance. And my journey in this work started in 2002. I was sentenced to a 20-year federal prison sentence. Uh, and in 2010, my sentence was reduced due to the passing of a, of a piece of federal legislation, the Fair Sentencing Act, which changed the ratio between crack and cocaine. And so as a result of this, my sentence was reduced from 20 to 14 years. I served 20, uh, 10 and a half years in prison. Uh, and I was released on May 29th of 2012. And so I felt obligated to get involved because of all of the different community organizations that were advocates for the Fair Sentencing Act. And so that was my introduction into sort of community organizing and policy change work. Thank you. So there is a term that I'm sure very few of our listeners have heard, and that is permanent punishment. Will yep. you please talk about that, the effect it's had on you and the effect it's had on many others? Yeah. So the, the, the reason why we decided to use the term permanent punishments and not collateral consequence is because collateral suggests that something is accidental. And we don't believe that this web of laws that, that really are barriers and restrict the rights of people um, with records 
after their legal system involvement, meaning this is something that follows people for the rest of their lives. And a quick example I could give is that my son, at the end of his first grade year in school, um, and by the way, his name is Little Marlon, um, he had a trip scheduled to a bowling alley. And his teachers asked me to volunteer as a chaperone because they see how invested I am in my son's education. And I was denied this opportunity because of a 20-year-old conviction. I was denied an opportunity to chaperone. I couldn't ride the yellow bus. I couldn't see my son with, like, you know how they put the, the protectors on the side of the bowling lanes to make sure that they don't roll gutter balls. Like, I could, I could not participate in any of these activities and had to explain to my son why I couldn't chaperone, which he didn't understand. Um, and so the way that we define permanent punishments is that these are laws that restrict people uh, of opportunities after they've been released from prison. And we've even called it the prison after the prison. Marlon, uh, by the way, those things are called bumpers. I, I can't believe I know bumpers. that. Uh, bumpers uh, in bowling. Uh, I can't believe I remember that, Marlon. Uh, it's been a long time since I had to use a bumper uh, in bowling. All right, Marlon. So let's go back in uh, a little bit and just talk about what got you uh, thrown into uh, uh, prison back in 2002. Uh, and uh, eight, eight years, did I get the math right? You spent eight years in prison? Ten and a half. Ten and a half. Wow. Yeah. Damn. Uh, so th- talk a little bit about what got you in trouble and what it's like doing a hard time that way. Yeah. So what, what got me in trouble is initially my girlfriend at the time was pregnant with my now oldest son, Delante Chamberlain. And I was, I was looking for ways to, to prepare myself as a father to provide financially. And I made a bad decision. I started selling drugs, got addicted to the lifestyle and my federal federal sentence was a was was a result of me participating in a drug conspiracy. Um, and so in 2002, I was sentenced to 20 years. And what I would say about my prison experience is that I feel like there were sort of like three tracks. One track was if you wanted to to grow as a criminal and you wanted to learn ways that you could come out and commit more crimes, that was definitely a track that you could follow. Um, there was also a track where you had individuals who were still learning around, around about different ways that they could commit different crimes, but they were also sort of programming to sort of rehabilitate themselves. And then there was a track of people who were sort of committed to educating themselves and really preparing themselves to come home and really do something different. And so that was the track that I chose which was I surrounded myself. And in the federal system, you have the unique advantage of being around a lot of different people, Uh, people who, where I grew up on the South side, I would not be in proximity to to certain people. An example would be Martha Stewart's co-defendant, Sam Weisel was in my federal like housing unit. Um, No way possible I would ever even cross paths with him if it wasn't for me being in federal prison. So I was able to take advantage of just like all of the the diverse like backgrounds of people and learn from folks to really prepare myself for release. That is so wild just to think about that. First of all, where were you? Where were you incarcerated? So I was in I was in uh, Milan, Michigan, and then I finished up my time in Yankton, South Dakota. 
Oh my goodness, South Dakota. Uh, and uh, so, so what can you learn from Martha Stewart's co-defendant? Like, what did you learn about life uh, so, from him? So he taught a philosophy of business class. And so I was able to learn about business. But I think the unique perspective that he brought was that, I mean, one, he was Martha Stewart's co-defendant. So he was well off. But I think just learning from him on like some of like the like just the habits that you have to develop if you want to build wealth or if you want to start a business. Like I was under the impression that running a business um, wasn't as hard as working a job, but like from being in that class, what you learn is that running a business is actually harder than, than just working a job because you're responsible for a lot more than what you would be responsible as just an employee. Well, I certainly hope he, you didn't get uh, tax tips from Martha Stewart. So. <laughs> uh, although, in defense of Martha Stewart, words I never thought I was going to say today, Marlon, in defense of Martha Stewart, man, compared to what, the the Washington Post uncovered and other other journalists uncovered about these rich people uh, stashing away their assets so they couldn't be taxed. Man, Martha Stewart was a rookie compared to those guys, and she did time. So I'm almost feel sorry for uh, this gentleman, Samuel. Uh, you know what? But in all seriousness, I never would have thought of prison as a, being a beneficial environment to turn your life around. And, and this is what I struggle with, uh, Marlon, when I talk about the war on drugs and Lisa and I've had this conversation so many times, it's like the war on drugs. Uh, I can't remember. Lisa said it was really a war on people. Absolutely. And, uh, in essence, we, <laughs> we, we, uh, criminalize certain drugs, uh, for certain people and, uh, made it, well, looked the other way, though, they're completely legal for other people uh, and so we took a product that people wanted in this country. I mean, if, if people wanted those drugs that you were, I'm not condoning Marlon people taking drugs. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there was a market for it. And now we're seeing Lisa and I are always having conversations about the legal cannabis market. We always have people who are on the show who are trying to make money off the legal. I just think it's so hypocritical that we criminalize an industry that people really want for whatever reason, good or bad, uh, Marlon. And so when you're in prison, you got to like divorce yourself. You got to divorce yourself from the way the world operates. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yep. yep. And, and, uh, and hold yourself to rules and standards that most people in the world don't hold themselves to, if you follow what I just said. Yep. Uh, so how's the psychology, how does that work psychologically? Like just preparing yourself to go back out into the real world and just lead a straight life. How tough is that not to deviate and go back to the old ways? So I, I think for me, and this is something that, that, that I like to pose, like the, the recidivism rate, what if that, that recidivism rate was a reflection of, of the institutions and not individuals? And so I, I do want to say this as a point of clarity, it wasn't anything about the institutions that promoted rehabilitation. 
it was it was me and a bunch of individuals who decided that we wanted to do something different. And so I think for me, sort of like the the like mental place that I sort of place myself in is is that I'm still a hustler. But how do I change up my hustle? How do how can I get involved in a way to where I can still hustle, but hustle and not be arrested? And I would also say there were people who are still incarcerated that were arrested for possession of cannabis. And to now see that there are dispensaries popping up everywhere and that it's legal, I think you're absolutely right. To me, that is 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 completely ridiculous. But I think the, the mental place that I had to shift to was just thinking about Marlon. How can you go out? and reinvent yourself so that you can still hustle and make a living for yourself, but also use my experience and what I've learned to also become an advocate for other individuals. And in the work that I do now with Fully Free, how can I use my experience to name these problematic, systematic issues that that really plague our communities that lead people to prison? And then we give people 20 years when I could tell you in year one, I was ready to come home and didn't need to serve the rest of the nine years because I knew that what I wanted to do like like after I was released from prison. Uh, I, I could ask a million questions, Lisa. I don't want to keep you out of the conversation. Do you have something you want to add? Uh, you want to ask them? Go ahead, Lisa. Well, Marlon, something that you touched upon was the fact that you had to try to explain to your seven-year-old son why you couldn't be on the field trip. So Ben just mentioned like the psychology of all this. And this is where it becomes really the war on people Mm -hmm. that this stigma that other people have placed on you is being passed down through generations. So can you talk about that and maybe some of the things your program is looking to do to help, you know, reverse that and what our listeners can do to help support those initiatives? No, absolutely. One of the I sort of summarized the fully free campaign into three buckets. And the first bucket is building relationships across the state. So we've been able to launch the fully free campaign in eight different cities across the state. And the purpose of us really launching these different um, these different campaign uh, or, or launching the fully free campaign in different cities is that each city has created their own chapter of fully free. And what that means is that not only are they connected to the statewide work as we work to to introduce and pass legislation, but they're also beginning to look for local permanent punishments that they can address on a local level. And so an example would be in Rock Island, uh, last week, we we launched the, the Fully Free campaign in Rock Island, and what they identified was that if you have a felony conviction, you cannot own a landscaping business. Neither can you cut grass. And so that's something that we're going to help them develop the skills to advocate and to organize around to introduce an ordinance that would remove that barrier. And so as we travel around the state in these different, different cities and they launched the, the campaign, really the model is we want to center people with lived experience, but also surround them around resources, trainings, community support, and then also give them a platform and exposure so that they can 
educate the community around these issues. The second bucket is around narrative change work. And, and this speaks to the, the question that you asked is really debunking the myths and the stigmas that people have about people with records. And so we want to educate the public around how do permanent punishments not only impact Marlon, but how do they impact my family and our communities? Because as you, as you laid out, like this is something that potentially hinders people from being able to generate wealth. Um, it also, it also creates sort of like this trauma for children. My, my daughter was just on a panel discussion a couple of weeks ago, talking about the impact of incarceration on children. And she talked about what it was like to have that daddy daughter dances and her father wasn't there and how she had to suffer in silence because she couldn't talk about like what she was going through because her dad was incarcerated. Um, and so we want to really address and attack that narrative of, of, of the myths and a lot of the stigmas that people have about people with, with arrest or conviction records. And then the third bucket is we want to introduce legislation and pass legislation that removes these barriers. Um, Marlon, I got, you've introduced uh, two uh, completely uh, bizarre, I guess, uh, prohibitions one because you were arrested you couldn't be on a field trip i mean it's like <laughs> what do they think you're gonna do start selling drugs to the kids on the bus i mean that's the stupidest thing i've ever heard <laughs> that, no that's not the stupidest thing i ever heard because it was immediately followed up by a ban if i i think you said rock island where if you did time you can't run a lawn care business what is the correlation between running a lawn care business and everything like what I don't understand, like, what's the purpose of that, Bill? Is it to, like, they, they think you're going to be able to, uh, you're going to get some kind of advantage in the federal uh, prison system that gives you an, some kind of leg up over a, a guy who didn't do time in the lawn care? That that one just n makes absolutely no sense. Uh, so, yeah, our, our country, you know, we wrestle with this one, Marlon, and I told you we were talking about this briefly before we went in the air. Right now in the city of Chicago, there's a war of words between our mayor, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, and our state's attorney, uh, Cook County State's attorney, Kim Fox, uh, over the shootings that occurred What was it, over the weekend, I want to say, in Austin. And it was a, a really brazen daylight shootout between uh, rival gangs way beyond anything you did. Okay. I'm just putting that out there. Okay. Not everybody did federal time, but did time in a prison was shooting each other in the street. So, uh, and there was the, I think several uh, people were arrested and they were let go. Mm -hmm. And uh, cook County state's attorney, uh, uh, Kim Fox said, wait, well, you didn't have the evidence to hold them longer and uh, prosecute them. We just didn't have the evidence. What's the point if we're, not going to have a strong enough case. And now uh, Lori Lightfoot has responded uh, by saying that's why crime is high. That's why there's shootings, because uh, people don't feel that there's any accountability. Uh, they can do whatever they want and you should just hold them anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is the environment, uh, Marlon, that you're you're in. You're swimming against the stream right now. You get, it's, we're coming. We have law and order is always here. Mm -hmm. You need to have, like proclaim law and order. So. How do you deal with that? Like the impulse people have to, for, to uh, have law and order, just throw people in jail, whether they're the ones who did it or not, just throw them in jail, just to send a message with them. How do you deal with that, with the message you're preaching, which is that somehow or other, sometimes there's a better way to do things. If you want people to go straight, go ahead. 
Absolutely. I think simply you create more opportunities. And I think our in our messaging, we're simply saying that after a person completes their sentence, whether it's it's jail time, probation or parole, that person should be able to then move forward without having to worry about all of these different barriers. And, And in fact, we believe that this is true public safety, like in a sense to where when you block people from opportunities, it's almost like you're forcing people to 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 really forcing them to go back to whatever it was that they were doing prior to their incarceration. And what we're saying is, is how do we create more opportunities? And, and I think really get to the root of why we see like these shootouts in broad daylight or why you see people go in and out back and forth into the system is because we, we want to address sort of like the symptoms versus the root. And the fully free campaign, the goal of it is to really address the root cause and saying, look at all of these hundreds of laws that hinder people after incarceration. So these are people completed their sentence. They've paid their debt and no way that they say that there was interest that we were being charged on this debt when we were sentenced. So now that we've been home, why do you have all of these barriers that really force people back into these sort of like certain neighborhoods where there's nothing? It's almost like economic sanctions where you've said because you've committed this act, you are now committed to for life and cannot contribute or participate in in the economics or housing or educational opportunities because you made a mistake. Right. It's it's a barrier to secure a a legal job. It's a barrier to renting. A guest we had on last year, Richard Wallace, founder of Equity and Transformation, it was through his organization I connected with Marlon. When he was on the show, he talked about the fact that uh, a landlord found out that he did a couple years in juvie and refused to rent to him. A couple years later, he bought a house on that block. But, you know, not everyone can overcome that. He had a supportive mom. You have a lot of internal strength. Uh, people need opportunities. If they, you know, if society wants people to be contributing members, they need to give people the opportunity to do so. Absolutely. And I mean, for us too, I think the goal is, is, is ultimately to change policy. But what we also want to do is to demonstrate, like when we show up in these different cities across the state, this campaign is led by directly impacted people. So people are able to see us in a different light. Um, because we're leading the work. And so here it is. We have hundreds of individuals that are supporting this campaign, which are Ph.D. candidates, people with their master's degrees. And so we also want to introduce a counter narrative that says, look at us like now compared to what you've heard. Or contrary to what you've heard, here's a guy who has been home for almost 10 years, who owns a home, I'm married, I'm in school, I've been employed since I've been home. And so even in that itself, that's narrative change work. And so we want to to engage there. Our data shows that there are an uh, estimated 3.3 million people in the state of Illinois with an arrest or conviction record. And so we want to engage and mobilize that group of people and really develop leaders so that they can become activists for their own liberation as we continue in this journey to be fully free. 
Marlon, our next guest, uh, State Senator Robert Peters, has joined us. So we're going to have to transition out of this conversation and turn things over to him. Before I do, uh, why don't you give any information you want listeners to have about your organization, how they get in touch with you, how they can follow uh, the good work that you do. Go ahead. Absolutely. You can check us out on our website at fullyfree.org. You can also like us on Twitter uh, at at Fully Free Illinois. And then also we have a Facebook page, uh, the Fully Free Campaign. Very good. Marlon, thank you so much for joining us today. I also want to point out that in next week's issue of The Reader, there will be an article sponsored by Green Thumb Industries showcasing and highlighting the Fully Free campaign, an interview with Marlon. And the issue that's out on the stands now is about the Cannabis Equity Illinois Coalition, which does a lot of work on reentry. Absolutely. Thank you. And how are you doing, uh, Representative Peters? Senator Peters. Senator Senator Peters. Let's get that one straight, Marlon. Senator Peters. Yes, sir. (laughs) Doing great. And this is a great campaign. So I'm, I'm glad I got to hop on and hear part of it. So um, I hope everybody can this work. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, Marlon, we'll bring you back. Thank you very much. Appreciate you taking the time. And Lisa, talk to you real soon. All right. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. That's Lisa Solomon and Marlon Chamberlain and State Senator Robert Peters, the pride and joy of Hyde Park. Uh, The pride and joy of Mount Carmel High School is uh, with us here. He's got a big smile on his face because uh, he is uh, introduced. Well, I don't know why he has a big smile on his face. I got the smile because his bill that he introduced last year, about, last week about the Bears got me so excited. I immediately texted him, Robert, it's been too long since you've been on the show. Let's bring you back to the show. Uh, so we're going to discuss that. But I have to ask you this question that coming out of the conversation we were having with Marlon. And uh, Marlon's talking about uh, restorative justice and uh uh, Robert, and then, you know, if you send someone to prison, you shouldn't treat that person like a pariah for the rest of their life. You should work from the assumption uh, that they can turn their lives around. Otherwise, you're just going to have people committing crimes over and over again. Uh, and that was the uh, I told Marlon, I go, well, you're coming on at a kind of an awkward time in the city of Chicago because the law and order chorus is really loud these days. Uh, and it was particularly law, loud. Law and order and tough on crime are uh, continually failing. And uh, when they get mad about what's happening, it's because they're mad about how tough on crime has failed uh, people in the city of Chicago year after year. And here we are with the results of a status quo. What Marlon's working on, what I'm working on, what so many people who do this work are working on is to experience public safety for everybody, that your zip code does not determine your level of safety. Uh, And either you're fighting to create public safety for all, or you're trying to create public safety for a few. when we think about tough on crime and law and order, and as I like to say, the empire striking back this year, um, what we're seeing is an indictment on a status quo that's failed. And I, as someone who works on a lot of criminal justice issues, I know we're going to talk about uh, the bears, but I would say that um, tough on crime and the bears have something, something similar in common, and that is perpetually disappointing us over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't see that way that coming, but uh, yeah, uh, the Bears, oh my goodness, the football Bears as opposed to the business operation. I, I thought the correlation that you were going to draw, which is I'm the, this is the drum and you know I bang this drum all the time, is that money that we give to the Bears, which they don't need because they're an enormously wealthy operation, uh, is a money that we're not giving uh, for restorative justice programs, for police for schools, for any kind of social good program that might help 
us get out of the mess we're in. Uh, there's only so much water in the bucket, folks. If you pour a healthy portion to a football team that doesn't need it, that means there's less for everything else. Robert, I have been pounding this drum since 1980-something. Sometimes it's like Chicago's so willful. They just don't want to. Either that or the powers that be are so strong. But before we get to a further discussion of this, I need to ask you about your thoughts about the, uh, the back and forth that's going on uh, between Mayor Lori Lightfoot and State's Attorney uh, uh, Kim Fox. Uh, and it gets at the heart of what Marlon was talking about. I asked Marlon about it as well, where uh, Lori Lightfoot is uh, blaming Kim Fox. Curiously, doesn't name her by name, whatever. Uh, she's blaming Kim Fox uh, for the shootings that took place in Austin because, or in the ongoing crime in the city of Chicago because Lori Light, uh, Kim Fox would not bring charges uh, if, if against people involved in that shooting or allegedly involved in that shooting. And Kim Fox responds by saying, I can't bring charges if I don't have proof uh, that can win the case in court. What's your uh, thoughts about this um, debate? I think it's all political. I think it's often all political. I think that uh, Lori and David Brown and a whole host of people uh, don't have the easy answers for what's happening in terms of public safety in Chicago. And like so many people are, are treating Kim Fox unfairly and disrespectfully. And this is not a both sides situation. I think Kim had every right to stand up and defend herself today um, and to push back and to sort of clap back at it. I mean, we're looking at a city that has a horrible history when it comes to clearance rates, has a horrible history when it comes to abuse, has closed schools, mental health uh, hospitals, closed hospitals in general, uh, disinvestment in terms of neighborhoods and institutions, and then wonders why we're in this situation. And then you combine that on top of the pandemic I often say um, we have to look at public safety in a broad manner. We have to define it beyond simply the institution of policing. And what I mean by that is I am intrigued to know how many Simeon students had somebody talk to them about what happened to two of their classmates a couple weeks ago. My feeling is they didn't have a long conversation with anybody because we don't have the resources to do so. And I don't even mean a social worker or a counselor. Is there an adult who understands pain and trauma who talked to those students? Because my guess is that didn't happen. Fundamentally, you you then see a spiral of people who've experienced pain and trauma over and over again, not getting the interruptions or the investments that they need, both materially and also emotionally. And so to pit that all on uh, one person, is unfair and it it feels like a game of politics so yes i am of the opinion that um of course it's easy to uh, point a bunch of fingers when it comes to what's happening uh in the city but i think fundamentally if you're not standing up and, and trying to change uh, the material and emotional conditions of people in this city then we're going to keep seeing these these things happen and it's going to be sad i mean I, you know, I had a friend who a couple weeks ago got carjacked and had a gun put to his head at 2 a.m. in the morning. Uh, I asked him um, who, you know, how old were the people? What does he think those people were? And um, he was definitely pretty sure they were teenagers. Um, and so the question you have to ask yourself is why? Why is that happening? And I think that we generally know those answers, 
but the answers that we'd give there would require having a fair tax that Ken Griffin decided to fight against and prevent. We know the answers to what gives us safety. We know the answers that say, uh, how can we make it so that whether you live in Ravenswood or Englewood, that you have a good and fair life. The question is that uh, the challenge before us is political. And those are tough political decisions. And the easiest political decisions is to stick to the same old dog whistle over and over again. So I'm disappointed, angry, and upset um, about what's happening in terms of these conversations. And I'm willing to have a conversation with anybody anywhere about what it means to have public safety. Because unlike most people, um, I have to live uh, in areas where there might be a risk in which I could get harmed or someone that I love gets harmed or someone I love did get harmed recently, right? Um, and, you know, I'm also very clear that overall, technically, we're actually a lot safer than we were in the 90s. The difference between the two is that we didn't have social media. So if something bad happened uh, near me when I was out as a kid playing on the playground or running around the streets or the alleys, the only reason why anybody knows anything now is because information is spread on social media so quickly and they are oftentimes wrong information. And this causes more and more anxiety and pain for people. So we are literally in a dynamic where we have material failures on a material level, we have failures on an emotional level, and we have a system of social media that is spreading information way too quickly. That's not the right information, but it draws a lot of clicks, a lot of attention, and it's, it's fundamentally pushing us to this wrong notion that individualism can lead to freedom when I would say that a collective community sense of freedom is what we need, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's crime, whether it's housing, whatever issue it may be. Um, if we don't see each other as a community and don't look out for each other as a community and we don't see that a zip code four miles away from us are part of that community, then we're going to continue to be in this cycle. And it's going to be very, very, very painful for everybody. Well, that was great, Ref. I took notes on a lot of different things that you said. There's a lot of follow-up. But before we get to the Bears, uh, I, I was going to mention Kenny G. You brought him up, Kenny G, of course. Uh, this is not the good Kenny G, good musician Kenny G, uh, that Miles Davis said is an amazing musician, which always – blows my mind that Miles Davis complimenting Kenny G. The other Kenny G, uh, who's not a good citizen of the state of Illinois, in my humble opinion, Robert Peters uh, may disagree with me in that one, but the fabulously uh, wealthy hedge fund operator who spends, it's like a little a little thimble full of his fortune every now and then uh, in Illinois politics, uh, trying to elect his good pal Bruce around or trying to push the state even more to the right. Uh, opine the other day, and of course uh, the media picked it up, gave him a, a big bullhorn that he may move his financial headquarters uh, out of Chicago, which is like, what, who cares? Anyway, by the way, I mean, I thought the whole point of uh, financial institutions, what makes you guys so successful now is that you can be operate anywhere. So I don't, you choose to be in Chicago, but if you, if you move, that's just the problem of the landlord of the building you're in, Robert. It's not like there's hundreds of families in your district who are being employed by Kenny G right now. So, but of course, you know, that, that work, you got the cranes and the trib all fired up, but Kenny G weighed in, he goes, city's not safe anywhere. Ken Griffin said this. He goes, the city's unsafe. It's worse than it's ever been. I agree with everything you said. I don't know where Kenny G was in the 90s. There were more people getting shot in the 90s. You go back to the 70s before you were born, Robert Peters. 1973, I think that was the year with the highest homicide rate in the city of Chicago. Look it up. So I don't know where Kenny G's been all of a sudden, but he's pounding this drum. 
And I do believe it's political. I believe they're pounding that law and order. You're, you're not safe, uh, drum, uh, in order to push the conversation to the right. So get your thoughts. I want your thoughts, please, on Ken Griffin's uh, A, threat to move his company out of uh, Chicago, and B, his view that the city, it's nowhere in the city of Chicago. Is it safe? Go ahead, Robert Peters. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll fundamentally say I think what was most offensive and was clearly a dog whistle was the use of Afghanistan. I mean, used to people say, used to say Iraq, and now um, we say Afghanistan because it just sounds right. And I, I actually, my question is, um, do, are we talking about Kabul? Are we talking about Tora Bora? Are we talking about Kandahar? Are we having a serious conversation about what's like Afghanistan? I mean, there's, Afghanistan's a large country and very diverse and complicated politics. Um, but that would require some sort of actual intellectual curiosity around that conversation that uh, clearly wasn't really being considered there. It was essentially to say that some parts of this city, especially where there are black and Latinx folks, are um, so dangerous and so bad that it's turned Chicago. I think, if you remember correctly, the statement about Chicago in the 80s was Beirut on the lake. Was one. Of, I mean, this is just... Historically, people attacking Chicago and turning Chicago into a form of a dog whistle over and over again. And I think that we live in a city that is extremely beautiful. We're on a lake. Um, You can go and get the best food in every neighborhood. Uh, You can meet amazing and beautiful people doing and trying their best every day. Uh, And what we don't need is people who think it's okay to, excuse my language, shit on the city. Um, we have gone through so much. We're very resilient people. And I, again, I don't think it's a serious conversation about what it means to bring safety um, to our city. I think it's all a form of politics. And in this instance, uh, it was to try to blame uh, Governor Pritzker, who I think is one of the leaders in the country when it comes to reimagining what public safety is. Uh, and I, I'm just... The, the worst part about it is how little I'm shocked by this type of discourse. Um, you know, I had a meeting, we had a panel, uh, me and a couple colleagues uh, with the Illinois Municipal League IML. And, um, you know, it was a very, it was an informative panel to talk about the Safety Act, the criminal justice pillar. And um, some of the people on the panel in other parts of the state and smaller towns um, using misinformation or the wrong information attacked our bill, uh, particularly on bail. Uh, And someone came up to me and they said, you know, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And I responded, I was pretty prepared uh, for people uh, to make bad faith arguments to me in these spaces. Um, It's becoming a regular occurrence. Uh, Some of us are serious about making sure that uh, you feel safe walking anywhere in the city. And some of us are not. And some of us are tied to a prejudicial, classist, uh, sexist system of tough on crime. And some of us, like myself, aren't. Uh, And we're in a period of great choices and great divide, and we have to make those choices. So to wrap up my little rant, I like to think of three people in history that inspire me um, when it comes to what we're fighting for. Uh, And the first one is Frederick Douglass, who said, there's nothing to uh, power concedes nothing without a demand. That wasn't said in a vacuum. He said that because he was talking about people in the West Indies and the Caribbean who demanded abolition of slavery, that they themselves demanded it. It was not given to them on high. It was something that they fought for. The second one is Abraham Lincoln said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. That was not a call for unity. 
It was a call to make a choice because the following sentences will either be free, will either be free or slave. He was saying we must make a choice uh, about what we're going to be. We cannot be both. It was a very divisive speech that he gave. The third one is FDR. There's nothing to fear but fear itself. And he said that in the context of the Great Depression. And that is, if we act out of fear, we're going to make matters worse. We are living in a moment with a pandemic, an economic crisis, and systemic racism that is calling on us to make bold demands, calling on us to make choices around those demands, and calling on us not to act out of fear, because if we act out of fear, we're going to make the matters worse. What's happening in the city of Chicago, what's happening in the state, what's happening in every major city in the country is that we are in a moment of true choice where we have to decide who and what we're going to be. And I would hope that we do not go down the path of a barbaric system of rounding up people, teenagers, particularly black teenagers, or undocumented people, that we don't build walls both physically with bricks and with metal or with cars and blue lights, that we unite and we invest in every zip code that we can. We are the richest country in the world. We should not be in this position and in this place. So this is a time and a calling for us to act. So no more excuses and pointing fingers, no more doubling down on a status quo that continues to fail us, and no more cowardice during a pain of crisis and pain. This is a time to be bold, and we must, in this moment, do that. That is not a rant. Uh, that was a riff. Okay, uh, Robert Peters, I'm, that was a, a, a very well-delivered uh, riff that had me taking notes. I will now give you a rant. This is a rant, okay, just so you can understand. Man, Kenny G, <laughs> what kind of BS is he stuffing down our throats? This is the man who funded the campaign against fair tax, ladies and gentlemen. He invested. It was an investment by Kenny G of 40-something million dollars so you dummies would vote against your own interest and vote on behalf of his interest, and as a result, he pays less in taxes than he would have paid if you hadn't been so foolish as to believe the stupid camp commercials he aired. And now he's on TV saying, I know what I'm going to do. Oh, by the way, northwest and southwest sides of the city who bought the line hook hook, line, and sinker and voted against the fair tax because you believe the stuff that Kenny G put out? What's the first thing he said when he was done uh, riffing about uh, crime? You know what he said? We got to reform the pensions. You know what that means, Northwest and Southwest side? He's going to cut your pensions. And you dummies voted for him. That's that's a rant, Robert Peters, okay? And remember, voters aren't dumb, Ben. What's that? We don't call voters dumb. All, All right. right, I forgot that. Yeah. That's right. We got we're work <laughs> I mean, I'm going to add you to the long growing list of millennials. Ben, don't shame, okay? Um, all right. Now, uh, Robert, let's tie it all together. Uh, great bill last week, if I must say so. I got to tell you, I was laughing out loud. I don't know what the chances of are to passing, uh, but tell folks your response when you heard that the Chicago Bears had purchased land in Arlington, the Arlington racetrack, uh, in order to ignite or further ignite this bidding war between Chicago and Arlington Heights uh, so that these two municipalities would fight each other to see which one could give the Bears the most amount of money. <laughs> A franchise that's worth $4 billion, ladies and gentlemen, uh, to come to their city. Uh, so what was your response? What was the legislation you introduced? Go ahead. My response is that um, 
we already have spent an immense amount of taxpayer or public dollars on Soldier Field. We did that on behalf of the Bears and that the critiques that they present about Soldier Field are their own doing. They picked the things that exist in Soldier Field. Is it perfect? No, not if you're trying to build the equivalent of Jerry World, but this is decisions that they made 20 years ago using taxpayer dollars. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. And so to me, I wanted to have a conversation around public money for large private sports teams like the Bears, that oftentimes fans are told to be, you have to give all your support to your local sports team or you're a horrible person. And we need to have a conversation about who owns that sports team. And so in this situation, if we're gonna spend all this public money, then we need to make clear to teams like the Chicago Bears that we're not gonna be played around with. And let me add, if Arlington Heights wants the Bears, Fine. I don't like it. Soldier Field is in my district. It's an important anchor, particularly to downtown in the South Loop. It's uniquely accessible. Um, it may not be perfect when you're driving, but you can take the bus, you can take the train, and you can bike to Soldier Field along the lakefront path. There's unique ways to get there. It's one of the most beautiful locations in the country. It is scenic. It's the reason why anytime you get a good shot, you get the most beautiful downtown in the world with it. Uh, we spent all that money, and I want to make it very clear, particularly to the Bears, that we're not going to play this game anymore. We're not going to we we're not going to be saddled with the debt, and not with the team. And so the way that the law works out is there's multiple options. Um, now, its effective date is technically for any new contract uh, or new lease that comes up. So that, you know it won't necessarily affect this one, but I want to have a conversation here, and that is. In Germany, um, soccer teams aren't allowed to play around with fans, they're lifelong fans, because fans have a 50 plus one ownership of the team. So you get to own part of the team, which reduces ticket prices. Mind you, we gave the Bears all this money and they created personal seat licenses. So you have, you have to spend all this money on a seat license, which is just an added way to get more revenue, a sneaky way to get more revenue and makes it less accessible to the regular fan. So the idea is 50 plus 1% ownership must be offered to the fans, however that might look like. There's nothing really defined there. And the municipality gets to have a say in that. Or to people who are like, that's too much, you're going too bold, fine. Ohio has a law called the Art Model Act after what Art Model did to Cleveland. Um, where that the local municipality then can find uh, someone rich enough, like a billionaire or multiple people that make up enough money to buy the team, and they are not allowed to move until they offer it to uh, the some a bidder, right? So we're creating options that say at the end of the day, the municipality and in this situation also the state gave you a lot of money, and 20 years later you complained and then tried to pit municipalities and fans against each other, and enough is enough. This isn't just a you know um, like I'm not trying to to say this for like no no big reason. This is uh, the fact of the matter is that if we keep seeing this happen, whether it's in Oakland in California with the A's, Chicago with the Bears or Buffalo with the Bills, these games have to stop. Sports teams and sports and fans 
belongs to the people. It is something that no matter where you live, if you see a running theme with what I'm talking about, you have a right um, to have some ownership over that team. And so I, I, I just wanted to make it very clear that on a couple reasons, whether it's the fact that we've invested in this anchor downtown, we've given this team money and they've continually disappointed us, mind you, um, and that we're now seeing them play these games that many of us are sick and tired of being put into this type of game. Oh, yeah. And by the way, just a brief correction. You were on a great riff. I didn't want to interrupt you. It's the Oakland Raiders, not the A's. Uh, no, no, no. The Oakland A's. Yes, the Raiders. But the A's, sorry, the A's are now trying to get a new baseball stadium. <laughs> and they're playing this game where they're talking about how they want to move and they're looking at different locations. And look, the Oakland Coliseum is a horribly bad stadium. I understand that. But the A's are owned by billionaires and very they have very rich owners. And the very idea that they're playing this game is just, it's disgusting. Listen, I, I, I go on and on about this. Uh, uh, but, but just to finish my point, the Raiders went from Oakland to L.A., back to Oakland. Now they're in Vegas. Uh, and they got a brand new stadium built for them in Vegas. Uh, L.A., Los Angeles, now brand new stadium built. Uh, now at least it's being shared by this. Uh, the Los Angeles Chargers used to be in San Diego uh, and the Rams. At least it's being uh, uh, shared. What, the notion that the A's would need a new stadium uh, after the Giants just built a stadium, and they were within like driving distance. Now I know Oakland's like, well, no, we want the revenue. San Francisco's no like, we want the revenue. But from an, just environmental standpoint, I know God introducing the notion of environment with sports fans is is like not compatible. Uh, Roberts, I'm not allowed to shame sports fans, but I mean they, they're not just the notion, of just constantly building new barnyards, just. I mean, in, in Chicago, we got the, we got, uh, they built a new stock stadium. We got Wrigley Field. Then they built it. You had the Chicago Stadium. They tore that down. They built the United Center. Then they had to build a uh, wind trust arena in the South Loop. And now they want to have a, a dome stadium for the Bears. Just like just the expenditure of money, resources. I mean, I could make an argument from an environmental standpoint that why don't we just like share these things? <laughs> I know that sounds preposterous. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I understand that. I think that what gets me is um, this is like there's a whole host of things. There's a whole bunch of things that are sort of contradictory around uh, sports stadiums and fans, right? The very idea that um, if you meet someone and they're from Chicago and they said they're a Packers fan, uh, and I, I hate the Packers. I grew up so disappointed uh, I, from Brett Favre uh, to what Aaron. Then they get Aaron Rodgers. And I'm thinking, how does the Packers have two great quarterbacks so long? But let's also, we're going to talk about the Packers in a second because we're going to talk about market in a second. But um, the, the fact of the matter is we would get, we would berate someone. You can't be a fan of this team. Like, how dare you? except the team doesn't really care about the fan unless they see the ka-ching. They want you to put up money in your taxes. They want you to put money in buying up the jersey. They want you to put all this money in. And then they're going to say after 20 years, that's cool, but, like, you owe us. And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. You owe us. You, the sports team, owe us as fans, not the other way around, 
put a good product on the field. Don't worry about us. Okay. And to put it to this, the Packers play in green Bay, which has to be like the fifth largest city in Wisconsin, which is a relatively small state. They play, they're they're technically publicly owned. It's embarrassing that we are not in the position to compete with the green Bay Packers. We should be embarrassed. The very idea that these teams hold civic pride over us is embarrassing. I think that enough, enough, and Chicago has always been in position to lead, and we should lead and say enough is enough. We're we're the greatest city in the world. We're the third largest city uh, in the country. We're the second largest county um, in the country, and we should be like, no, we spent all this money on this stadium. I hope folks in Arlington Heights, who I would I would guess would not be okay with a sales tax increase or a property tax increase or whatever tax scheme they come up with. I have a feeling that Arlington Heights people and people who live there would not be okay with the tax increase. That's my prediction guess. So I think that we should just say enough. We've given you enough money, uh, play on the field. Um, and, uh, let's make sure our star running back stays healthy. Let's make sure our star quarterback doesn't get sacked so many times and let's keep winning the games. Uh, I will bet you almost anything uh, that the financing scheme that they're going to use in Arlington Heights is a tiff uh, that I would put money anywhere on it. Uh, and uh, I know you're, you're going to shame me for shaming voters, but I don't have any more confidence uh, in the ability of Arlington Heights uh, residents to see through the scam that is the TIF program that I have in Chicago's. Uh, so I think they're going to get away with it. I think they're going to say that it's going to be an investment in infrastructure, uh, just the way that people, the city council, the alderman bought that one when Mayor Rahm told him, oh yeah, Lincoln Yards. Don't think of it as a handout to Sterling Bay. Think of it as an investment in infrastructure, bridges. And like people are like, wait, when did we decide that the bridges on the north side of Chicago were any more necessary than bridges? I don't know. in 50 other wards around the city where bridges are crumbling. But you see, that's what they do, Robert. So, you know, well, it's an investment in infrastructure. And they also have the issue of a, a, a white elephant because you're stuck with a, a racetrack that's not used. So they'll, that's how they'll sell it to uh, the, the people into the Arlington Heights. Um, but but your other point the funny thing is we have um an issue when it comes to housing particularly with starter homes so young people are having trouble being able to buy uh starter homes especially young people of color but that's a longer conversation that we can get into at another time um we could build and develop more housing uh specifically for people to be able to buy housing so we can create stronger generational wealth. This is a gap that exists um, across, uh, especially across race. It's different levels of those gaps. Um, But that's another conversation for another time on a macroeconomic level. But as a progressive, I've been told I'm not good at economics, even though I'm nerdy about it and love it. Supposedly smarter people exist out there. And if you look at what's going on, it's been great. I mean, I heard Chicago's uh, financials are amazing. We're like the best city in the world financially. I mean, obviously, all these smart people, these adults in the room know what they're talking about. I just say, if you spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a stadium, maybe the team that you gave it to shouldn't leave. All right. Uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly on that point. And now we get to the meritocracy issue. And it's interesting, uh, Kenny G, Kenny Griffith did not mention the handout that is going to go to the Bears, further handout, uh, when he talked about all the ills and the ales facing the state of Illinois, the city of Chicago. Uh, And he did. And he supposedly is a free market guy. 
who believes that markets prevail without assistance from government. So if he's a free markets guy who believes the markets uh, prevail without assistance from government, why is he not screaming to the to the clouds, to the heavens against uh, a handout to the Chicago Bears to uh, just a subsidy they don't need? Uh, and there's no point- free market. That's just a. That's, I mean, there's no people who say they're a free market person fundamentally, um, especially if they have a lot of money, are truly benefiting from a whole host of corporate welfare. And all we're discussing and talking about is who gets corporate money and who does, I mean, who gets government money and who doesn't. And there's no actual existence. What people need to justify whether they've overcome or inherited something. And therefore, they come up with a whole host of reasons about whether they're smart or something. Uh, and we're, I'm not in the game of people who need to prove themselves to other people. We, if you can't drink your water, that's a problem. If you can't, uh, you know, make it to work, that's a problem. If you don't have a roof over your head, that's a problem. That's a problem for all of us. Um, but I mean, the the interesting thing about Friedman, Milton Friedman, and Friedman economics is that it really never existed or happened. And even the people who supposedly espoused it only espoused the social part of it, not the actual fiscal part of it. Uh, And, you know, even when we think about monetary policy uh, and we have a whole long discussion on quantitative easing and talk about interest rates and all that stuff, even then, if you look at the current state of the economy, um, either a decade ago, we bailed out the banks instead of people. It was still a form of a bailout. And I think it busted the myth of the idea of, quote, unquote, this free market. What we do know is that people can have freedom to abuse other people. And uh, we have a large conversation about power relations between people. And that that that's essentially the main argument here is whether you believe it's OK for certain people uh, to get the upper hand on other people and to even use the state like government to do so. But I, I think, yeah, this is why. Yeah, I agree with you that there are no such things as free markets in reality, particularly for wealthy people. The NFL itself is a socialist organization. They divvy up the proceeds to make sure that no one uh, entity gets more than another entity. That's the whole point. Uh, they share the risks, if you will. They put a salary cap on their players. There's only a certain amount the players can make so that like the Green Bays of the world are not at a disadvantage to the Dallas's of the world. That is socialism, my friends. It is definitely not a free market situation. And yet every single, I bet you every single operator of an NFL team, if you got a, him alone, it's, it's, I think in all cases it's a him, maybe a L.A. Yeah, is a Virginia McCaskey. Yes. Oh, yes, Virginia McCaskey. How could I forget the Chicago Bears? I put them out of my mind already. Uh, so if you put uh, he, them in a room, they will be telling you about how free markets work and how the joys of capitalism when, in fact, they're beneficiaries of socialism that work to the detriment of their players. Go ahead, Robert. Yeah, no, talk about the free market. And you'll look at the history of from Texas Stadium to AT&T Stadium or um, you look at the history of SoFi Stadium. It was a, a basically Los Angeles was pitted against St. Louis. And if you look at the history of Stan Kroenke, who owns the Rams and he owns um the Denver Nuggets and Colorado Rapids and Arsenal, um, you're literally looking at somebody who was okay with whatever government program could exist to help them do that. Saddling, of course, St. Louis with hundreds of millions of debt that would be in what was then called the Edward Jones Dome, uh, which is just sort of a, you know, ding, ding, ding of why you give all these people money and they don't really care about you. Um, And if you just look at the history, just let's just at stadiums, 
they're not they're not funding they're not paying everything out of pocket. They're relying on government. They're relying on the people and the taxpayers support that. And so, to me, yeah, it's just the the hypocrisy and the contradictions here are um, it's rugged individualism for the many and corporate welfare for the few. And we need to have a different conversation about that. Absolutely. All right. We'll close with a very political question. Uh, do you see, I'm, I'm always making fun of your Republican colleagues. You should realize this uh, in Springfield uh, because they are really in a bizarre situation where they're controlled by MAGA. Uh, and so they've adopted certain principles. And one of the principles they've adopted is liberty, even though they don't agree in liberty across the board. Uh, like Colin Kaepernick, for instance, didn't have liberty. Uh, that's just one instance. And um, so uh, do you see any resistance anywhere from any of your Republican colleagues uh, in Springfield on the notion of giving a corporate handout to the Chicago Bears? I think there will be some colleagues who will um, be against it. And my feeling is that there'll be a variety of different reasons for why they would be against it. Um, One will be because it's an easy thing to knock Chicago, uh, right? Chicago is often used as a dog whistle, whether you live in Chicago, the suburbs or downstate saying Chicago is meant to convey something negative for some people. It's Afghanistan for other people. It's other things. But, um, so you might have people who might be against it simply to be like, why are we doing this for Chicago? Even if it's Arlington Heights, that could be a thing that happens. Um, you have some people who just say, I don't want to do this. Like people aren't for this. I'm not going to use state taxpayer money to do that. Um, And then you might have some people who will be supportive because it's particularly the McCaskies have a well-known history of being, um, you know, very supportive of some uh, Republican um, causes. And I think that it's just, um, I think it's a little complicated, but, you know, I think when we talk about this taxpayer money that goes to these things, it's always somewhat complicated. And I think we are in a period where people are less susceptible to doing these things. I, I think these schemes are harder and harder for people. And I think the public is also wary of them. I, I don't see um, particularly Chicagoans or people in Illinois being okay with giving tax, giving their money, right, uh, to pay for a, a stadium. And I don't think they'd be happy if they – um, cause it's been 20 years if they're aware that we, we still actually owe money on soldier field. And so we're still going to be saddled with that. And we're going to be saddled with that for a team that only spends, you know, now the fire play in there as well. And we do concerts, but if there's a new stadium, a large stadium near O'Hare, we're creating an immense amount of competition for soldier field when it comes to say the Rolling Stones or something. So I, I do feel like it's going to, it will be a complicated conversation and I'm down to have that conversation. I'm down to say, we've already saddled with your debt. Why are we talking about some new debt uh, when the state of Illinois could be putting that money into, as we talked about earlier in this conversation, talking to kids who are experiencing trauma, whether they live in rural Illinois or they live in, you know, the south or west sides of Chicago. If you're experiencing a lot of trauma and nobody's there to talk to you about it, maybe that deserves a little bit more funding and not a football stadium. Well put. And I just want to remind everybody before we head out uh, that when the Chicago Teachers Union that sponsored this show. Yes. 
uh, when the Chicago Teachers Union went on strike asking for more nurses in the public schools, uh, the editorial voices of Chicago, the corporate voices of Chicago, the civic voices of Chicago told them to shut up, take their money, and get back in that classroom. And don't worry about nurses. Lori Lightfoot's in charge. The mayor's in charge. She'll take care of nurses. And when she thinks there's enough nurses, if she thinks there's enough nurses, then you have enough nurses. And your point about Simeon was so right on, Robert, because two students in one weekend shot uh, Simeon students. And I, I really am curious. I'm going to reach out and ask, you know, were there, were there nurses or therapists or grief counselors uh, sent to that school to deal with the crisis, the, the, the trauma? I, but I don't see any strong editorial voice, any strong corporate voice, any strong civic voice immediately reacting with criticism to the bears, get their big paw out, looking for a handout, trying to compete, uh, bid, uh, create a bidding war between Chicago and Arlington Knights. I didn't see that same anger. You know that anger I'm talking about, Robert Peters? They turn mm-hmm. on the Chicago teachers. How dare you tell us how to run the schools? You're lucky we even employ you. Now shut up and get back in those schools. We, we have such a meritocracy around education, and it's it, 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 it because it's much easier to blame people for their own poverty if they are. If you say, like, well, you didn't learn enough or you didn't – you don't understand enough. This is, yeah, it's, it's frustrating. And it's, um, and here we are, this, all these things just show like how everything's so contradictory. I mean, like fundamentally it's like, it's okay to do some, to spend all this taxpayer money on this thing, uh, because someone is going to make a bunch of money and that's going to improve our tax base, even though they're going to spend 75% of the year in Western Michigan. I mean, like, that's literally what we're talking about here. Like, they're going to be like, oh, I I actually live in Florida, but I'm a Chicagoan in this instance. I mean, like, this is just the games we're playing over and over. I mean, we're forgetting Ken Griffin got a lot of trouble during the pandemic when he sent all his workers down to Florida um, during the, the 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 area when we were doing a lot of stay-at-home stuff. So I, I, I just think that we are in a period of great contradiction. Instead of leaning away from those contradictions, actually step into them and ask a series of questions of the why, the what, and the how. Well, I know that Kenny G will close with this in terms of meritocracy. He always said, if a school isn't performing, you close it down because those bottom line statistics determine whether a school should operate. And if they're failing, that means they're not worth saving. Close them down, fire those teachers. That's what, how is, is meritocracy uh, when it comes to schools. Come Chicago Bears, Somehow or other, the people that run the Chicago Bears, I'm going to leave you with this, ladies and gentlemen, you non-sports fans out there. The people that run the Chicago Bears took a look at two quarterbacks. They took a look at Patrick Mahomes, and they took a look at Mitch Trubisky. And they decided that Mitch Trubisky was not only better than Patrick Mahomes, but was worth trading up to draft. That is a lack of achievement and performance that I would say is worse than any low-scoring school in the Chicago public school system. And yet, we're talking about rewarding them. You talk about rewarding failure. You know what, Robert Peters? I don't think the Bears should get a nickel from anybody for at least 50 years for having drafted Patrick, I mean, having drafted Mitch Trubisky. I know you're a sports fan, so you know what I'm talking about. Over, All you got to do is look at Patrick Mahomes and say, oh, my God, it's the greatest quarterback ever. Well, I'm, I look, I'm not going to play uh, 
pontificate on the roster. What I'll say is um, let's just put a good product on the field. Let's focus our energy on making the playoffs. Let's do that on a regular basis. Let's beat the Packers on a regular basis. And I think, you know, that's more important than talking about whether we need a dome or something. Um, what we need to know is uh, I want to be able to, after uh, we have a kickoff return in the Super Bowl, I would like to have won the Super Bowl. <laughs> Oh my God. Oh, you had to bring that up. Devin Hester, he's, oh yeah. I was like, yes, it's going to be another blowout. And the Bears. <laughs> oh, that Bear offense. All oh, those quarterbacks that the Bears develop. But uh, anyway, all right. Robert Peters, I'm too hard on the Bears. Yes. Uh, but come on, Robert. Come on. The guy looked at Patrick Mahomes. He looked at Mitch Trubisky, and somehow or other, he came to the conclusion that Mitch Trubisky is better than the greatest quarterback of the 21st century. I don't know how that guy still has a job, by the way. Anyway, all right, enough. Robert Peters like, don't put me in the middle of that one. Uh, Robert Peters, it's always a blast talking to you, uh, and uh, thank you for introducing that, Bill. Keep up the good work, all right? Definitely. Thank you, Ben. All right. That's the great state Senator Robert Peters, the park pride and joy of Mount Carmel high school. Uh, and I want to thank him for coming on the show. I also want to thank Lisa Solomon, Marlon Chairman. Great conversation early in the show. And of course, I want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Robert Peters and Mitch Trubisky will tell you back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. Nielsen CEO, quote, Chicago is a really good place to have a corporate headquarters, end quote. And we agree.